today at the new indian we have with us major general rajiv narayanan who has retired from the indian army after 37 years of service he has expertise in mechanized and modern warfare and actually served along both northern and western frontiers of india he also has been a keen watcher of china and the indo pacific Welcome to Reason, the New Indians platform where we get to the reason behind the issues that concern you. Welcome, General Narayanan. Thank you, Mrs. Arti Tiku. It's a pleasure and I thank you for welcoming me onto your platform. Let me begin this conversation with the military strategy of India. we know that you also have been uh, working and focusing on the military restructuring of india i want to understand is india on the right track uh, given that there has been a certain shift in our military strategy we the many people in fact said that agnivir scheme for example was a major paradigm shift in how we were looking at the modern warfare and how we need to now restructure and reorganize our thinking would you agree that uh, there is a shift and second do you think we are going in the right direction while i agree there is a shift slight not as much to, or as i would have liked it to be and there is a shift in thinking but it doesn't translate on ground primarily because we hear a lot about uh, hitrization but we do not hear anything about what is the integrated military strategy the tri services that's why the hitrization push is coming under uh, stress from the other service chiefs especially the air force before you do any kind of force restructuring what you we need to realize that when you restructure something it lasts a very long time it takes time to mature and when you mature are you ready in that structure to face the future uh, battlefield so that should be the crux of any change and for that you got to look at what should be the drivers of change and what are the uh, challenges as you face today and what is the way ahead how do you go about doing that so the first thing is the evolving nature of warfare itself if you look at uh, the various western and russian writers they talk of seven eight generations of warfare that we are evolving from the 5th to the 6th and may go into the 7th indian structures are still uh, looking at second third generation of warfare and with those structures you are fighting the fourth generation which is counter terrorism counter militants militancy and coin ops and what they talk about next is very critical is the budgetary support because there are evolving uh, disruptive technologies that are coming up we keep hearing about ai quantum and other issues that are coming up 
these are very expensive and so you need to see what kind of budgetary support and how do you generate economy of scales if you look at it only through military expenditure it may not work and that leads to requirement of a civil military academia and industrial fusion i hear people talking of civil military but no civil military academy and industry that is how your budgetary support gets spread out can you please uh, for the sake of our audience explain what are these first generation second generation fifth generation war and oh. warfare uh, and why do you say that we are trying to fight with um, tools which were per, uh, perhaps from the second generation a military warfare see first generation warfare was the ancient warfare mast attacks second generation happened when gunpowder came on the battlefield so you had guns and artilleries so which is what the first world war was very famous for mast artillery fire and attacks the third generation was mastered during the second world war was the deep attack the blitzkrieg and the manner in which maneuver warfare which evolved which is where we are the fourth generation is the uh, non state actors use of non state actors where you have the uh, counter insurgency counter militancy counter terrorism those operations taking place and you may add these mercenary groups also who come in and fight in various places that is fourth generation fifth generation becomes non contact the long range use of ucavs uavs like what we found during the gulf war and uh, subsequently also the ucavs and uavs that were being used cruise missiles that is long range vectors coming in now sixth generation is when you look at swarm tactics you look at uh, ai being brought in you look at the uh, whiteouts of communications use of satellite militarization of uh, space this you are going into the sixth generation the seventh generation is at the moment laid out in the hollywood and it would at some time come in that is uh, for a decision making we talk of an uda loop observe orient decide attack so you first get the information data convert it into intelligence and take a decision what you are going to do and execute that plan now if i disrupt that in the sense that i delay either delay the information that is coming to you by disrupting your communication systems or i corrupt it so that you get a wrong input and you decide on something else that is going into seventh generation wherein a lot of your uh, what you find in marvel vfx and cgi and all these start coming in so that would come in eighth generation is at the moment in the realms where uh, it's totally non contact and you to thoroughly confuse the enemy uh, mentally cognitively and he doesn't know what he is doing uh, it is like he's been doped and he just surrenders so that is the eighth generation which people are working towards we are already seen the fifth generation in these recent conflicts in yemen nagorno karabakh uh, and now you are looking at the sixth generation evolving in ukraine 
So, uh, but sixth generation uh, in Ukraine, and you were saying that all the conflicts that India is dealing with or the wars that India has had, we've been way behind. You're saying that you we are not- started some of these disruptive technologies within the military, you have started creating your nodes. Like I said, these are very expensive. The military alone, you will not suffice. So you need your civil military academy and industrial fusion. That is the reason why if you look at it in the recent uh, uh, two sessions that uh, she had, He's created a science and technology commission, which he heads. And there is a civil military academia industrial fusion there to work towards achieving this. These disruptive technologies don't come uh, cheap. They're very, very expensive. But we're also seeing, for example, in Ukraine war, we are also seeing uh, conventional warfare. We are seeing yes. men of... Correct. You're very right. This is what is hybrid. You will have your normal conventional operations. You will have your non-state actors also fighting. And you will have your fifth and sixth generation. And whenever you reach the seventh generation, it will be there. When you're doing all this, you are degrading, destroying and disrupting the enemy. But physically, the conventional forces have to go in to secure those areas. So the standoff India and China, for example, has had on uh, the line of actual control in Ladakh. We saw we saw a very primitive way of warfare. It was almost ancient. It was like coming to blows where men use their raw energy and nothing else, no weapons, uh, you know, no real machines. So do you feel that? Uh, India is prepared to handle China, knowing that she, for example, is going towards that integrated sixth generation, seventh generation warfare. Do you think we are prepared or are we going to just go, you know, deal with them moment, on a primitive primitive? At the moment, uh, let me put it on record that the Chinese army is also in a similar situation, um, PLA, in a similar situation like ours. Okay. He's bringing in a whole lot of platform, but he doesn't have troops. That is why he's trying to bring in uh, buying of these instructors from the US, West, Australians to come and teach them. You may bring in more platforms, but if you bring in more platforms, then you can bring in trained manpower, then you have a problem what China is facing. There are more platforms than trained manpower available. You can't fight future wars with conscription. 40% of the Chinese army are conscripts. So you need a professional. That's why we have gone in for Agnivir. That is another step which they have taken so that what the person whom you get is a committed and a well-trained person. Whereas a conscript comes for just two years and he's off. He's not interested in fighting. He's interested in going off. So yeah. that is what we have done. And so, like I had mentioned about these budgetary and... But the most important is the integrated military strategy. Yeah. You know, the start point comes from a national security strategy. When you say national security, people always think, oh, oh that's military. No. They are 
many verticals for security. You have economic security, financial security, you have food security, education security, your commerce, your trade, uh, data these days, information, cyber, socio-political security. So there are a number of verticals in security. So when you lay down your national security strategy, it covers all these. It's, you always have uh, a portion of that which is given in the open domain, uh, which is very generic in nature. And there is a classified one which is given to people that this is how you're going to do. Based on that, you have to bring out your national defense strategy that all these verticals, how are you going to defend? Military is also part of it. Internal security is also part. From there comes your integrated military strategy. When you have enunciated your integrated military strategy, from there you evolve what kind of capabilities do you need to execute your military strategy. And once you have identified your capabilities, that is when you decide what kind of structures I need to effectively utilize these capabilities to execute the strategy. Now, the first two has not fructified and we are going jumping directly to the third to create integrated structures, which is where I have my worries. Maybe I'm wrong. They have something pinned. I retired up almost seven years ago now. Maybe they have penned something. It was not there at that time. So post-retirement 2017 was one when I had uh, written an about an integrated military strategy 2040 for India and what capabilities should be there. Uh, before we go, before I ask you to explain what this integrated military strategy should be, uh, apart from you did say that we need to cover all the aspects, whether it's uh, food security, whether it's environmental security and other things. But before that, I would like you to explain for our audience that if China has more platforms and does not have enough trained men or do not have enough committed uh, soldiers, what is the likely scenario that can unfold between India and China over the disputes uh, that we have along the line of actual control? We, we have that uh, agreement that we will not open fire and that has held since 1975 when was it was the last time when firing was done. He doesn't want to provoke because if it happens, then it's war. Even if a person locally has opened fire, it is very difficult thereafter to uh, manage the escalation. In military jargon, it is called escalation control matrix. How do you control the escalation? It becomes very difficult. And the, a local flagration then becomes a large war. Now, whether it stays within that particular sector or expands, it becomes very difficult to control. Like in our case, 99, when it happened, at least the Americans had stepped in and put pressure on both sides to make sure that it didn't expand beyond JNP. Uh, would, who would step in? if such a thing happens with China. That is the reason the clubs, and that is the reason the latest input I read today that he is buying more such clubs. 
because he suddenly realized in Yangtze, India was very well prepared with those kind of clubs. And within those clubs, we had added tasers. Yes. So it became very effective. So he's also going for the same thing. In my reading, it will take him at least minimum till 2030 to become effective. To have uh, soldiers as much as the platforms that are there. So uh, he's facing these issues at the moment. How to, like one of the reports, uh, which I have put it in my book, which is pending uh, publication with Lancers, the Air Force doesn't have normal rotable space. He's concentrating so much on making new platforms, uh, modern aircrafts. There are no spares available. So every uh, equivalent, what we call the squadron, like he calls a battalion, every battalion has been given additional aircrafts to cannibalize and utilize. You can't fight battles that way. It's okay for peacetime to maintain your aircraft. You can't fight wars that way if you don't have your logistics in place. Now, that is a telling statement, especially Air Force. And I'm sure it will be the same problem with the uh, ground forces, with his rocket force, and also his, especially his Navy, where he's putting in so much attention to bringing new platforms. Almost every, within two to three months, he has a new platform. And could that be a possibility that, you know, since China is not really prepared to get into a full-fledged war with India, it is looking at alternatives. It's looking at tactical alliances with Pakistan. I mean, they're actually bailing out Pakistan with the Pakistan's economy collapsing. They're trying to help them as much as they can. See, Chinese method of fighting the war is very different. We shouldn't put our template on them. He, fight, he will fight when he's ready. Before he fights, he always aims to make any nation hollow from inside. Burn it from inside. That's why I say he's aptly called the dragon. Dragons don't bite. They burn you. And then they bite the remnants. He does the same thing. That is where Xi Jinping... Uh, Tang Xiaoping had coined this phrase, comprehensive national power. West looks at economy, diplomacy, and military. But Tang Xiaoping had brought in a very important vertical, which was there in our ancient uh, uh, books written by Chanakya, Arthashastra, Nitri Shastra, where man was very important. So he has brought in the human vertical. You subvert the human you have subverted the nation. Simple. That is the lesson they learned from Mao Zedong. How they recovered and fought after the long march. They subverted the locals, the peasants. And that's how they fought. They became the fighters for them. So within a nation, he is going to subvert you. That is his primary method of fighting you. Once is that his primary goal? Is, is that his primary goal? with Yes. India. Yes, Sun Tzu, they follow Sun Tzu. The acme of generalship is to win without fighting. You will only go to war when you are assured of victory. Is he assured of victory today? No, he is not. He will try to denude you, 
And in that, Pakistan is the cat's paw. And he's hoping that Turkey will be able to do something along with Pakistan to India. Though Turkey is too far away from us, but he could be able to assist Pakistan in the non-contact warfare using non-state actors. So what do you think China, how is China going to approach Pakistan? What utilization can it have with a destabilized Pakistan or with a stabilized Pakistan? He would have preferred Pakistan to be stable. And uh, he's trying to reach out to Afghanistan to see what he can do. It's not working. He's made an attempt and tried to make a big show of what he has done with uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. But we should not forget that talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran have been going on with, in Iraq. No, in Iraq, five, six uh, sessions they have had. And most important, what we have to remember is this was NSA level. This is not even the minister's level. It is NSA level from both sides have discussed. So let's see how that transpires. China faces uh, a problem of uh, funding. Where does he, he get the money from? If you look at it, his eastern seaboard, most of the ports, uh, there is what is called CACs, Container Availability Index. Anything less than 0.5 means there is excellent traffic going on because you're not going to get containers because the containers are moving out. Across his eastern seaboard, the average uh, CACs availability is between 0.65 to 0.7. That means there is no trade going on. Containers are readily available. Container is readily available. That means there's no trade. If there is no trade, where is the money? 85, 80 to 85% of uh, Chinese economy depends on uh, exports. So he is looking at these dilemmas today. And that is why I think today they have shed with the wolf diplomacy. It didn't pay dividends. And he wants to show a good face. So while Chingang has been made the foreign minister, but Wang Yi has still been kept above him because he is the head of the foreign affairs in the CPC. Yes, uh, even with, with so many challenges economically and militarily also, but China hasn't, uh, you can say, receded its claim either on Taiwan or it hasn't receded from the claim it makes on South China Sea. It keeps, in fact, it has uh, optically at least has shown that it controls both and it has a legitimate right over both. See, uh, all these had been in place even under Tang Shaoping, Chang Zemin, Hu Jintao. They were doing in a quiet manner in a slow and steady movement. And under Hu Jintao, when people got worried about China's rise, so he coined those phrases, peaceful rise, harmonious rise, we'll do it together. But Xi Jinping appears to be a man in hurry. He wants to earn a name for himself. He became aggressive and he started pushing this aggressive, aggressively. And all these came out in the open. Now, today, what has happened is, who are his allies? North Korea, Pakistan, 
ईरान टर्की बाकी कंबोडिया लाओस do they have a standing but wouldn't you say with the you know rcep they try to at least have some kind of economic uh, consolidation some kind of economic cooperation in uh, southeast asia and uh, in fact most southeast asian countries went along with it even as there were other choices as well andrew hall had written a beautiful book on china's asian dream and uh, the way the chinese have taken control of asean less singapore and indonesia they invest and invest till they control at least 10 to 12% of your gdp then you are scared to antagonize the chinese because they threat to they threaten to pull out and no country can uh, take an economic hit of a double digit pull out on the gdp the classic example i'll give you is of vietnam vietnam if you remember it was around 2011 or so when the first standoff took place with the chinese on the drilling issue where they had brought in into the south china sea near vietnam what was the reaction the vietnamese people went to town and burnt all the chinese factories and establishments at that point in time the chinese investment in vietnam was about bare 5 to 7% of the gdp the chinese within a week pulled out said sorry everything though in that uh, people didn't realize some south korean some japanese firms also got burnt cut to 2018 again a standoff happens what is the reaction in vietnam they went running to town to all countries to say you must blame the chinese no people came out at that time vietnamese controlled 14 14% of the vietnamese gdp see the difference in the reaction that time the government permitted the people to do this time the government didn't permit the people to do Hmm. that is the way the chinese want to avoid the thucydides trap geo economic hold on countries so you gain or coerce your influence in that region and you achieve your aims so, so that rcep it was obvious that the asean countries would support i was surprised why singapore was singing pains for rcep because the chinese investment within uh, singapore and within indonesia is not there india refused because it was not getting amicable uh, say in that and indian markets uh, would have suffered indian industry would have suffered so let's see how the indo pacific economic forum works out ipef is coming in yes now coming to indo pacific does india really have an indo pacific strategy i mean we hear china talking a lot about its uh, its its navy we hear a lot about in china's influence in south china sea we hear a lot about china's influence trying to make inroads into indian ocean as well and in the indo pacific as well 
But where is India's Indo-Pacific strategy? What is that strategy if there is one at all? Yeah, India is looking more at the Indian Ocean. Not as much as the Pacific portion. But uh, before that, let us clarify that there is a divergence of understanding within the uh, partners in the Indo-Pacific as to what is the spread of the Indo-Pacific. India says the spread of the Indo-Pacific is from the eastern shores of Africa till the western shores of the American continent, both North and South America. The spread is still there and includes within Asia, includes the, and Africa, includes the continental portion also, because there are countries which, ha which have uh, maritime boundaries also have contested continental boundaries. And there are nations which are landlocked, which depend on these waters for their trade. Just take Nepal, take Bhutan, Zambia, Gambia, to name a few. They depend on these waters, so they, we include them. Take US. For the US, the Indo-Pacific is the boundaries of Indo-Pakon. That means it runs from Hawaii and ends on the western borders of India, south of Gujarat. Because north of Gujarat is the CENTCOM. Mm -hmm. And thereafter, the balance, Arabian Sea, and the south-western Indian Ocean is AFRICACOM. For the others in the region, they are looking only at the Indian Ocean, Western Pacific, and South Pacific. So firstly, we are not clear as to till where is the footprint. That is number one. Number two, I personally feel that if you look at all the arrangements and agreements that are existing in Asia and Africa, enormous amounts of multilateral, bilateral, trilateral, MOUs, agreements, arrangements, you call it, and it's overlapping. You look at Africa also, similar cases there, it is overlapping. How do you, uh, and whatever is the basket of money that you have is the same. How do you ease out everything so that there is a better utilization of money? That is not being thought of. People look at Quad. Quad is a dialogue. What is not an umbrella? It is just a security dialogue. Yeah. So you are just talking. So unless you have a Indo-Pacific framework or some commission with the secretariat, which brings in all these verticals under themselves, so that you are able to sort out the problems extending a little bit my talk. If you just look at Asia, SDG was uh, given out by the UN in 2015 to be completed by 2030. ADB came out with a detailed financial requirement in report in 2017, February 2017. Asian countries needed then $30 trillion. 
you and bulk of it was for infrastructure, energy and clean water, sanitation. These were the major issues. So China, I feel, has made a better use of that by coming, came in initially with BRI. So people joined in, but then people have now realized that BRI is more to do with China than for themselves because it became a debt trap. Mm -hmm. But if China was using that, nobody else used it. The only architecture which provided a viable alternative, I would say, was Asia-Africa Growth Corridor supported by Japan and India, mm. under which Colombo port was made and some African ports we had invested in and work was going on, where uh, people have appreciated that. But then you can't match the pockets of the Chinese. So if everybody gets together, you know, build ARIA, build uh, Better Back, whatever the names they give, various acronyms, the Americans have come in, but uh, you try to go independently, it doesn't work that. Well, the other uh, acronym that now we hear quite often is AUKUS. Australia, US, UK coming together as a military uh, grouping for um, the Indo-Pacific and countering China. Do you think that this military grouping is one, does it have, uh, does it really have the strategy right? Will this strategy work? When yeah. you look at AUKUS, so we, I'll start with the Americans first. Yeah. Uh, pivot to Asia, rebalancing Asia, everything, big talk. Mm -hmm. How many boots have come on the ground? Nothing. No. Have anything changed uh, as far as the uh, Indo-PACOM uh, strength concerned? No. So what is this pivot to Asia or rebalancing Asia? Has more money come this side? No. So these are just phrases coined to keep people happy that this is where it is. Now you like AUKUS. AUKUS was essentially to sideline French. Yeah. The French had a deal with them. Now, while have Australians ever functioned with a nuclear sub? Never in their life. When was the last time they functioned on subs? During Second World War. Do they have trained crews to function on sub? No. By when will this submarine fructify and when will it be effective? It will be at least 10 years. Hmm. They have still not started making anything. Now they are saying that they will take the British technology. Everything is how to make money for the uh, military industrial complex. So they, they will take uh, the technology from the British. Add-ons will come from the Americans and then they will make this sum. Does Australia have the manpower to man these subs? So, what the, so are you saying that the entire purpose of AUKUS was just to spite France and to keep France yeah. up? Because there is a big divide within NATO itself where the continental powers, the old continental powers like France and Germany are not aligned with UK and US. 
Yeah. Or what is now termed as the Anglo-Saxon group. That is UK, Canada, US, Australia, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So France was coming in and France is a legitimate Indo-Pacific resident power. It has islands, territories in Indian Ocean and in the Pacific, hmm. South Pacific. But the Americans are not keen. They're not keen to even add them into Quad. But as we know, and as you rightly pointed out, Quad is a dialogue. There it's is dialogue. nothing else except for the maybe some level of economic cooperation. But uh, what is then? what is then the world's Indo-Pacific strategy. India is looking at Ind Indian Ocean. West is, you know, restricted itself to NATO. And I mean, for the uh, sake of optics, AUKUS. What is the strategy of the, West, strategy, the biggest superpowers of the world? Their strategy in involving India is the only big power available to them with a sizable navy is India. And they want India to come into the Pacific to fight their wars. Why should I fight their wars? I have my continental problem with China. Maritime problem has not yet come up. Yeah. We are strong and we will see how to manage that. Why should I go into the Western Pacific and fight his battles there? Fair enough. Let him fight his battles. Now, one I will add. We talk of the nine dash line. Who made out the 11 dash line? Claims on Arunachal and Tibet. Who brought it into their parliament? When it was Republic of China and it was Chiang Kai shek. It was 11 dash line. Okay. It became nine when uh, in after 75. When communist uh, Vietnam, with the support of communist China, defeated USA. So that was the time when Mao Zedong dropped these two lines of the Vietnamese area and made it a nine-dash line. Has the uh, Republic of China, which is in Taiwan, passed and made any resolution to say that they will have no claims on nine-dash line? No. Have they said they will have no claims on uh, South Tibet? No. But do you therefore uh, feel that um, we gave shelter to Tibetans in exile? We have also been home to Dalai Lama. We have, after 1962 war with China, although there is you know, there is an agreement that there will be no fire, but there is this constant either skirmish, constant battle. What exactly uh, can India do or should India do to resolve issues with China amicably without going to war? Is that even possible? No. Chiang Kai-shek was the person when he was fighting Mao Zedong. He made the famous mention, I think it was in late 30s, that there can be no two suns in the sky. Okay. There can be only one sun. 
and Chinese are following it to the T that in Asia there can be only one son, which is China. So he will not accept any other nation as an equal. And India is not going to accept second fiddle to China. That's where it stands. And that's why I said that it's your military and economy. You have to maintain that balance. Then why aren't we talking enough about Tibet? Why don't we? In fact, we have shown certain kind of, um, you can say, perhaps skepticism or doubt with, uh, you know, we tried to stop the Lai Lama from going to Arunachal Pradesh a couple of times. We have, we, have, uh, we have been following a very unclear, ambiguous line on Tibet. I won't say unclear. It's a quiet line and you leave it to ambiguity. Once you become strong, that's when you open your cards. You don't open your cards before. Do you foresee that India can have both and there will be a certain equilibrium in military advancement, military technology, as well as economic advancement? You have no choice. You are living in a, such a VUCA world which has become worse after the Ukraine war. Now, if you have come up today in G20 and said that you will be the voice of the global south, and let's be clear, Global South is about 150 odd countries. That means you are standing, saying that you will be the voice of virtually the globe. Other than the developed and uh, some uh, developing countries, rest you are saying that you will be the voice. Will the global powers agree? Already write-ups have started coming up of... Uh, rise of India is going to upset the uh, global power balance. They don't, want, they don't want another China. <laughs> they know India is not going to be a China, but other powers uh, will not like, see the pie is the same. They would not like the pie to be reduced. The biggest worry today, especially in the West, is the, they are facing recession. Mm -hmm. Now, while they may write this, they are also very keen to do business with India. That's the only growing economy that is there. And that's, that's where my question comes into, that, uh, that while we are not willing to participate or cooperate with them in securing their, um, uh, you can say, their security in the Indo-Pacific, but we have the expectation or we, we think that we have the leverage that they can do trade with us on our terms. Yeah, see, uh, our Minister Jayashankar had very clearly mentioned the problem with China has been ongoing. Who has stood by us and shouted at China the way these people are shouting at Russia? Has anybody done it? No. So why should I do for you? Anywhere. Charity begins at home. You want me to do something, then you have to stand by me and start shouting. If you can't shout and impose sanctions on them, the biggest problem is, I would put it bluntly, avarice. The MNCs wanted to make a ton of money, which 
China was ready to provide in the early 2000s. So through the 90s, they spent a whole lot of money and helped China prepare its infrastructure. 2001, they forced Chinese entry into WTO when China was not even following any of the rules of WTO and it doesn't follow even today. Why? Because if China was not in WTO, the MNCs could not open their factories there. Now they've opened up their factories there. Even today, except for uh, iPhone, which faced so much of a problem out there in their factories and other things that they are planning to ship big time into India, which other factory is opening up into India big time? The amount of profits they earn from there is enormous. But uh, explain to me, what is our Indian Ocean strategy? We know that uh, China has uh, been able to buy several ports. You know, we saw what happened in Sri Lanka. We also know they they're trying to have access to Africa through the sea, uh, through, through the ocean. So what I want to understand is, when you say that we are going to focus only on Indian Ocean and we are not going to meddle in the Indo-Pacific, are we? Uh, do we have no security threats from the Indo-Pacific? No. When we say I was, what I was implying was we won't have physical presence there, but we will provide them with the backup, like the sale of Brahmos to Philippines. Vietnam has also expressed interest in our Brahmos missiles. So we will sell them those things which will improve their st uh, security standoff with Chinese. Okay. As far as the Indian Ocean is concerned, we have a concept called uh, the diamond necklace. Yes. We too are in talks with various countries like uh, Oman, the Dukum port is there, Mauritius, Seychelles. We come to Indonesia, we have... Uh, birthing and port facilities. We are developing their port, which is right at the mouth of the uh, Malacca Straits. So we also are following this pattern of, uh, which is which we term it as the diamond necklace. If the Chinese but, attempting a string of pearls, we are going in for a diamond necklace. Yes, but what is the leverage that we are going to use? I mean, China, you yourself acknowledge that chi nobody can match the Chinese pearls. So how are we going to fulfill this diamond necklace strategy? You find that the manner in which the Chinese went about it, look at the kind of pushback they got in uh, Sri Lanka. Look at what has happened in Pakistan today. Can you depend on Pakistan? Is the Gwadar port complete? No. Your Chabahar is complete. And you're sending the shipment uh, of uh, wheat into Afghanistan via Chabahar. So, when you look at that, the manner in which we go about it is we provide them an alternate method for growth. See, the Chinese come in with all the material from China, the labor from China, the running is also from China. Like you take this famous train which they have made the standard gauge uh, rail uh, from uh, for uh, Kenya, which runs from the port to the capital. Everything is run by the Chinese. That's mm -hmm. Staff on the train, the drivers, everybody is Chinese. There's no uh, jobs for the locals except for an odd job. That's about all. Where, so is, 
when we went into colombo and started making another terminal for them in the colombo port which is run mostly by the chinese with japanese we trained those people and we said okay after 5 years you will run the port now there is a total difference of how you do it now that so, is where people welcome you so what you are essentially saying is that india's uh, policy is uh, is honest and there is integrity in our approach and that is the kutumbakam and when we say like uh, prime minister modi in 2018 had mentioned sagar security and growth for all in the region that's what you're doing what he says for the country is what he's doing sabka saath sabka vikas and you get sabka vishwas so people are supportive of you that you're doing it the locals in sri lanka today are very happy with you you look at uh, afghanistan despite the taliban being there because you are helping out the locals and everything what you say you're giving it to them they can't afford to be anti you because they survive on the support of the locals he wants you to come in mining is not giving it to the chinese he says you come and do the mining because he knows that when we go to do the mining we will train the locals you painted a very positive uh, image of india militarily it seems that uh, we shouldn't be really as anxious as many uh, are trying to make us anxious vis-a-vis -vis china as well as pakistan but i want to understand what are the areas which you referred in passing what are the areas where india needs to focus immediately immediately is your problems that are going to come out from along the lac and the loc it will happen just because chinese pakistan economy is going down don't think that he cannot utilize his uh, non state actors because the non state actors are funded from drug money yeah and the drug trade is flourishing yes apart from that uh, the pakistan military has it's a military incorporation if i may coin ayesha siddiqui's phrase it's a military business Yeah. so and the uh, the earnings are equivalent to 20% of the gdp of china or pakistan mm -hmm. so how much money from that gets funded into non state actors you don't know so we have to be careful that just because his situation has become so bad and that his military is not able to fight and attack for 3 days that doesn't mean non state actors will not be utilized they still can be utilized so you got to guard and be on guard for that and that is why i say that your military security or the expenditure that you put for your security forces which includes your police the capf the military and the economy you got to maintain a balance that balance is essential you can't say this less and that more no it won't work unless you have a secure environment external and internal it is very difficult to gain your economic growth well thank you so much for this fascinating conversation uh, it was really enlightening thank you thank you thank you very much pleasure to be on your show pleasure